The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're going to be talking about the criminalization of children with mental illness. Um, this is a topic that is near and dear to my heart, and it just boggles my mind how uh, blind people are um, to the problems of children that ultimately in, lead them, end them up in jail. Um, these are, you know, we're talking about primarily problems of abuse and neglect, and sometimes these problems lead the children into foster homes, um, sometimes not. But it is, you know, in any kind of problem in psychiatry or, you know, personality, uh, personal development, psychological development, however, however you want to, you know, whatever you want to call it, um, it is the things that happen in our childhood that are the most formative, the most, have the most influence on everything that happens for the rest of our life. Now, um, I strongly believe this because, uh, as some of you know, if you've been listening to this show long enough, I um, am psychoanalytically oriented. I studied, in fact, with Anna Freud, the daughter of Freud, in London. And, uh, and I have, for all the years that I've been in practice, I have seen these things being proved, proven time and time again that basically just what I said, the, the traumas of childhood um, act themselves out at some point in a person's life and, and actually create the journey. Uh, primarily, of course, it's an, on an unconscious basis, but, um, you know, I mean, I know that some people think, oh, what did Freud know or whatever. Well, I'll tell you. <laughs> and every person, every patient I've had, every person I've had to examine as an expert witness, anybody, <laughs> friends, family, <laughs> um, it is... It, it is true. You know, you just can see, like, if you knew who they were as a child, you can kind of plot out um, what their journey is going to be as an adult. And similarly, when you find them as an adult, you can figure out what happened to them as a child. And unfortunately, um, in a lot of cases, actually, the statistics are more than half of the inmates in U.S. prisons have a mental illness. And they're... And, and, this, of course, began in childhood. Now, really, I think that that's... My guests are probably going to be able to talk about this, and I think that that figure is very uh, conservative. I think it's a lot more than half. Um, well, let me introduce my guests. Um, they have very interesting stories to tell. My, um, first, we have Christina Kopich, and um, she is an advocacy content specialist at the Ruderman Family Foundation, she uh, works as a faculty member at various universities throughout Boston, and she's taught numerous kinds of classes, notably things that have a strong focus on social justice issues, inclusion, and science literacy. And then also my guest is Taylor Nouvelle. Uh, she has a personal story that reflects all of this in that um, she was abused in childhood and then she was domestically abused, uh, you know, was the victim of domestic violence in adulthood and ultimately ended up incarcerated. Um, so she, uh, and also she was in the foster care system because of uh, her childhood issues. So she is an illustration of the things that Christina is going to be talking about based on her research. So why don't we start with Christina. Welcome to the show. 
Thank you very much for having me. So maybe um, you could tell us first about the Ruderman Family Foundation, what its mission is, and then about your research. Sure. So the Ruderman Family Foundation is based in Boston with an office in New York and in uh, Rehoboth in Israel. And our main mission is the full inclusion of people with disabilities in all aspects of life. So education, housing, employment, you name it. Uh, More specifically, we make the argument that full inclusion of people with disabilities is not a matter of charity, but of civil rights. So in the case of this specific white paper, um, we we frequently publish white papers as part of our advocacy in order to raise important issues concerning disabilities to the general conversation, national conversation. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in this specific one, we really wanted to look at mental health because it is such a prevalent topic. Um, A lot of people, approximately 20 people at any given, 20% of the population at any given point have and are actively experiencing a mental health issue. And then we looked into prisons and incarceration, and as you mentioned, about half of all the prisoners um, in jails and prisons throughout the country uh, have mental health issues or other non-apparent disabilities, such as learning disabilities, attention um, deficit disorder, and things like that. And so the question we kind of had in this paper is, where does this start and um, why is this happening? We're essentially seeing that prisons are becoming warehouses for people with mental illness. And and so we looked into the school-to-prison pipeline, which, as I'm sure your, your listeners are familiar, is widely discussed in terms of race, um, Black people are much more impacted by the school-to-prison pipeline. In general, um, minorities are. But then when we added non-apparent disabilities, such as mental illness, we suddenly realized that people with mental illness are even more disproportionately represented in the school-to-prison pipeline as well as the foster care-to-prison pipeline. So in other words, if you are a minority and you have a non-apparent disability, that intersection will make you much more likely than a white person who doesn't have a disability to end up in prison. And the startling thing we found is that it starts essentially in pre-K. Mm-hmm, You know, I, um, going back to one of the things you said about how jails have become um, essentially a mental hospitals. I mean, that is one of the things that um, is a pet peeve of mine. Um, It was a big mistake when they closed the mental hospitals throughout the United States, most of the mental hospitals, uh, especially the state mental hospitals, and um, put the, I mean, it was supposed supposed to be uh, civil rights. Uh, I I don't know what you think about this, but, you know, having worked in uh, a state hospital, as when I was a resident, I was um, chief resident and part of at Bellevue, and part of my work included um, being chief resident for the Manhattan State Psychiatric Hospital, and um, and then I, I worked with another one also in LA. And anyhow, I've seen a lot of a lot of state hospitals, and um, yes, people thought originally that freeing freeing the patients from there would be a civil rights benefit, but um, really. People with diseases like or disorders like schizophrenia and manic depressive illness and so on, especially if they're not going to be uh, seen regularly and kept on their medication, they really have problems out in the outside world, especially if they don't have family and so on. And so it, it was supposed to be a kind thing, but in the end it hurt these people. And yes, most of them have wound up in jails. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, our perspective on that is one of civil rights as reflected by the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, signed in 1990. Um, Under that act, a person with a disability, which does include mental illness, is entitled to supports and accommodations. So if you do need um, help in any way, if you need uh, access to therapy, access to medication, you it is your right to, to seek that if you have a disability. So if, if you cannot be gainfully employed without a certain type of medication, let's say if you have schizophrenia, you it is your right to have that disability accommodated. Um, so what we have seen is that I mean, yes, that there's that historical issue of closing down hospitals nationwide. 
but we also are seeing kind of a society that doesn't believe that mental illness is a disability, that doesn't believe that it's somehow real. Like the, the comparison we always make is that if I break my arm or my leg, um, you're not going to come up to me and say, oh, go run that marathon, like just, just you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, like get it together and go run. You're going to mm-hmm. see like, hey, I, I need to have my cast and I need the time and I need the accommodation. But then if somebody has bipolar or schizophrenia or depression or, or really anything, because it's not visible, as, as we say, it's not apparent, those people often are fundamentally stigmatized and it's, it's considered that your mental illness is somehow a character flaw. If you just were to look at it uh, from the right angle, you would get rid of it. But, but that is the fundamental misconception mm-hmm. we really tried to tackle in this white paper. Which is also why we didn't just stick with mental illness. The, the title of the paper is uh, on the problematization and criminalization of children and young adults with non-apparent disabilities. So what we're also seeing is that if you have Crohn's disease or if you have um, any other non-apparent disability, like say a heart defect, there's so many stories of people with a um, disability of the heart using the handicapped parking spot. Uh-huh. And then they will have, like, they have the sticker, they have the decal, they're legally allowed to do that, and then they will have these so-called Samaritans come up and pour coffee in their face because it's like, oh, mm-hmm. look at you, you can walk, why are you using this person's mm-hmm. face? When they don't know, you might have a, you know, loose lung capacity. Again, your heart might be failing. So many reasons that you are entitled to using that space, but if we don't see the disability... We treat it differently. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, Taylor was a key contributor to the white paper, and she will speak to that even more. But the problem is that um, people with mental illness, their disabilities, they get dismissed. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Um, and it's, it, it is, there are, yes, this whole phenomenon of, of just get over it uh, is really, has really hurt um, people who are mentally ill uh because you know because you can't a lot of times i mean just get over it um there are certain things that you can't just get over without getting help as you were saying mm-hmm. uh, without getting therapy sometimes without getting medication mm-hmm. well um the music means that we do need to take a break here my guest who was just speaking was Christina Kopich and we're going to come back and talk with Taylor Nuvale in a minute. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're going to be talking, we are talking about this new study by the Ruderman Family Foundation that reveals unjust criminalization of children with mental illness. And uh, as we were talking about before the break, 
the preponderance um, of um, people in prisons having mental illness. So now we're going to be talking to Taylor Newvale, um, and her she is sort of a a story. She has a a happy ending <laughs> to her story. I mentioned that she was um, abused in childhood, extreme childhood abuse, and um, she. And then when she grew up, she was the victim of domestic violence. And it was only in her late forties that she realized that she has trauma-induced mental illness from these um, from this this abuse, the early abuse, and even the, the adult abuse. And um, she is, it is a happy ending because she then became the founder and CEO of Who Speaks for Me, which is an organization that aims to build a trauma-informed justice system and offer alternatives to incarceration for women and girls. So, Taylor, why don't we start at the beginning? Thank you for having me. Um, so, I... Um, I grew up in a pretty abusive family that has a history um, of abuse. It's generation to generation. Um, I went into foster care during my high school years, and in the paper I talk a lot about this in my personal statement, um, and I did contribute to the research part of it too, but in the paper, I, in my personal statement, I talk about the criminalization piece of it, and that's what we were really looking at. Um, So I am not traditional in the sense that I did not go from school to prison, but when, if you look at the trajectory of my life, um, when I now go to these conferences or I'm asked to speak, it was bound to happen. Um, Mm -hmm. So for me, I I, 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 I just did an interview with someone, and they were having us talk about... um, where we first saw our mental illness depicted in film or on television. And for me, it was the movie Precious, and that mother is very much like my mother. Mm. And um, I, I am very much like Precious in a lot of ways, except for that I didn't grow really big. I grew very, very thin. And by the time I got to high school, my mother's and my family, the extended family, the abuse had become so extreme that um, she actually tried to kill me. Mm. Um, one over a weekend and that Monday morning she contacted my high school now mind you I was in gifted and talented classes I was uh, in advanced placement classes I was a cheerleader I ran track I played soccer I took dance classes wow I was not your typical African American student living in a traumatized situation so it was very difficult for my guidance counselor my teachers and anyone to really actually think that something was going on in my home. Uh-huh. Um, I That Monday, I remember going to school and wearing, and it wasn't very cold outside, but wearing a, a high neck shirt because I had strangulation marks all on my neck. But my mother, because of her mental illness that was not even diagnosed or treated, um, she called the school and ordered them to... Um, send me to the juvenile detention center or she would kill me. Huh. Now, two weeks prior to this, I had had a meeting because I was having a conflict with a teacher um, in my geometry class, I remember, and they had to call my mother into the school in order to move me to a different class. It was just a rule that you had to meet with the parent first. And you know, my mother was working class, three kids in the home at that point. My older sister had she was grown, um, and so she, they, they, she was very angry for having to take off work, and my uh-huh. guidance counselor saw a different person um, than he saw when I wasn't with my mother. When uh-huh. I was in my mother's presence, I was very quiet, and she was very derogatory about the kind of person I am, and he called me back after the meeting and asked me, what does she do when you're alone? Uh-huh. And I told him, because someone was finally asking, and I think I was at that point where I knew that... Uh, it was not going to get better. And when he called social services, this is two weeks prior, prior to her trying to kill me, um, I met with a social worker who said that I didn't appear to be an abused child because huh. I was smart, articulate, and I was too willing to talk about the abuse, and she never reported it. Two weeks later, when my mother threatened to, told the school that she was going to send me home, 
there was a meeting with me, the school circle social worker, the guidance counselor, just a lot of players. And the decision was made to send me home with a school teacher and not to report it to CPS, which is Child Protective Services. Wait, and wait, wait, I was, wait, 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 wait. To send you home with a school teacher to live with a school teacher or what? Nobody really knew what to do. I, 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 I mean, I'm 47 years old. This was in the 80s. And because of the response from Child Protective Services when they first called, there was a fear that, um, my understanding was that there was a fear that they would just stick me back in the home. Yeah. So they wanted time to figure out what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a brother who's just 11 months older, and um, so when I, and obviously we were in the same school, we were actually in the same grade, um, when I went home with the school teacher, a couple of days went by and my brother reported to my mother that I was still in school, which enraged her. And she came to the school looking for me and they had to put me in another part of the building. Huh. And then she sent, she sent the police to the school teacher's house. Um, well, where did she think I, that you were before your brother told her? Juve- she thought I was at the juvenile detention center because I that was see. the threat in our life that if we didn't, behave the way she wanted, she'd put us away. Uh, I didn't, of course, th- they didn't send me to the juvenile center. They <laughs> took me home. Yeah. One of my teachers took me home. Yeah. The teacher actually contacted my mother, and then my mother sent the police to their house, and I fell asleep <sighs> because I had actually overdosed that day. I had taken a lot of pills, um, and it's very hard to die by taking a lot of Tylenol. I was a teenager. I didn't know this. I threw up mm-hmm. a few times, and... Um, I fell asleep. I actually went and did a, I, it was the night that I had to do cheerleading, so I went and performed. Um, I was disassociating. I, I went home with my teacher after the, the game, and I fell asleep on her couch, and I, I remember her saying to me, I have to call the police, and she woke me up briefly and said, they're, they're on their way, and I just said, please don't let them take me back there. And I I drifted off. When I woke up, I heard her talking to the police officer. He never spoke to me, and he said that he wasn't going to take me home. He had spoken to my mother. He'd gone out to to, to where I lived, and he said that he had to declare me as a runaway Mm -hmm. in order for me to become a hearing. So a runaway, running away is a criminal act. So I actually had to be declared a runaway and declared to have committed a criminal act in order to get a hearing. And we got the hearing, I think, a day or two later. And the first judge asked me, if you don't live with your mother, how will you learn how to raise your own children? And Mm. I was feeling pretty spunky. And I said, I would never raise my children the way she's raised me. Uh My case was, interestingly, I was in, my mother at that point um, was, (laughs) she was very, um, my mother is very manipulative, and she does gaslighting. And so she was sitting there, and she was the victim of me. And mm-hmm. my, my school teacher, the guidance counselor, the school social worker, they were all there to support me and to advocate that I not be sent back home. And the judge ordered me out of the home for, I believe it was 90 days, and a friend's family stepped up so I could go stay with them. Mm. Um, 90 days later, we were back in court, and they had put us in family counseling, and people didn't show up that needed to be at court, and it was a different judge this time, and I will never forget his name, and I'm tangentially connected to him now through someone else. His name was Judge Valentine, and Mm -hmm. he wanted to know why my lawyer was not there and the therapist was not there. And I, he asked me, and, and I told him, um, because they assume that I'm going home today. And he said, if everyone knows what I'm going to do, then why do I need to be here? Mm. And then he asked my mother if she abused me, and he, she said, no, I don't beat my daughter. I don't abuse my daughter. I beat her. And he told her I, I was I don't abuse old. my daughter. I beat her? Yes. And the judge said, and, and this goes back to the historical trauma, which Christina can talk, Tina can talk about more because um, that's covered in the white paper, the historical trauma in the black community um, and how beating versus abuse is viewed. Um, so the, the judge, Judge Valentine, said she's not a five-year-old that you're taking across your knee and smacking on the butt, and that's not even appropriate. But he did say to my mother, to hit her is to abuse her, and I'm not sending her home. And he declared me, he made me a ward of the court, 
And that is how um, I ended up in foster care as opposed to the juvenile detention center. Mm-hmm. But things didn't get better. And twice during my high school years, I ended up almost dying by my own hand because everyone believed that if I just, if they could just get me to college, everything was going to get better. And of course, things were not going to get better because I had spent all of my life being severely abused in every way you can imagine. But no one could see that. No one understood that my getting smaller and smaller. Um, anorexia at that time was not something that people even considered was a part of African-American culture. Mm-hmm. And the doctors were like, oh, girls were always dieting. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. I was getting down to 100 pounds and 95 pounds and I'm 5'4". And, and, and I was still very active physically. And... Um, my foster parents actually abandoned me my senior year because they could not deal with my eating disorder and things like that, and they left me my senior year. Um, so things and didn't wait, get better. Wait, wait, so where did you go? My guidance counselor, well, what they did was they, they because I had turned 18, because my birthday is in December, but I was still a senior in high school, Yeah. My, they, they, they allowed me to be an independent living and I went and lived with my guidance counselor Uh and nobody still thought that this would that this was a problem that it was impacting my life in a way and so I um I went away to university everyone thought it was going to get better and it, it didn't get better um the body doesn't just work that way the mind doesn't work that way Mm mm-hmm I don't know how much more you want me to tell you. Um, (laughs) We're in college now. Go ahead. So what happened? I don't talk a lot about the university years because that is when my disability really showed up. Um, Uh The anxiety, um, the the nightmares, the flashbacks, Mm. a a lot of things I was really surprised because there there wasn't that much distance between some of the most traumatic experiences in my life and my arrival at university. Mm-hmm. But I seem to have been able to suppress them enough that I didn't remember them. But I went away to school far from home, and I guess my body felt safe enough, and I started literally, like, walking around, yeah. and I would see clips of things. And I didn't know what it was at the time. I learned then that those are called flashbacks. Yeah. But we would yeah. be in class. I was a literature major. We often sat, sat in circles and that, that made me feel very close in because mm. of where I'd be positioned, and I would start having panic attacks. And so... Um, okay, Taylor, let me... We, yeah. I don't know if you heard the music, but that means that we need I to take did, another yeah. break. Um, so we will have to stop it here and leave everybody on a, a cliffhanger, and uh, we will <laughs> be right back. So that was uh, Taylor Newvale, and we have heard earlier from Christina Kopich, and we're going to come back. Uh, You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5787. 
5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're talking today about the criminalization of children with mental illness. And we heard uh, at the beginning of the show from Christina Kopich. She is the advocacy content specialist at the Ruderman Family Foundation. We're going to be hearing more from her. After we finish hearing the story, we left on a cliffhanger of Taylor Newvale, um, who is sort of an, an example of um, what happens when uh, childhood traumas, such as the abuse that she suffered, um, is not recognized and not dealt with uh, sufficiently and early enough. So, um, Taylor, we left off where you had gone to college, but that that wasn't a panacea, that wasn't the cure-all just because you were in college. And, in fact, yes, I could see how sometimes when people are away from, um, you know, when you've been repressing something for a long time and then you get to a place where it seems like it would be safe to start to remember it, um, sometimes these things can come flooding back. And I was asking you during the break about whether you had gotten any therapy. You know, it was great that your school at least recognized uh, that you shouldn't go home to your mother. And, um, and yes, I understand, you know, you were talking about, yes, how in the black community beating is sort of more what culturally acceptable and not recognizing it as, a, as abuse. Um, and, but in any case, it was abuse. And um, fortunately, you didn't have to go back to her, although I would imagine that the foster families might not have been a piece of cake. You can tell us about that. But I was asking about whether they also recognized that you needed therapy, um, not just to be separated from your mother, but some therapy for all that you had suffered up till then. So tell us about that. Okay. So first of all, I want to clarify that just because you're removed doesn't mean they don't send you back because they have reunification plans. Right. So I was sent back. I was sent back a couple times. And oh, you were, sent back to your, you were sent back to I your mother back. a couple of times. Oh, a huh. couple of times, and and she when she tried to kill me the third time, they said no more. So um, they did decide I needed therapy because of obviously I tried to kill myself, and um, there were some other things going on. My social workers thought they would get the highest and most well-known white male psychiatrist, and that's where they took me. And they didn't even know my nickname, which was Cookie. I didn't go by my birth name. I had never gone by it. And um, I didn't talk to them. They would take me to sessions, and I would just sit there. And we went through a series of psychiatrists who were like, we're not going to see her anymore. So we just stopped it. So there was acknowledgement. And when I got to college, I did find a therapist, and she was the first person to tell me that I had post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh But then I ended up, you know, I finished school, and I ended up getting pregnant and marrying a very abusive man and... Things just didn't get better. Um, they actually got worse, um, and that's how I, I, I. The thing about trauma-induced mental illness, especially um, when it comes from abuse, as, as a, a psychiatrist, I know that you know this. That you tend to end up in relationships that replicate yes. what you've grown up with, right. because it feels comfortable. And so I, I can't. I can think of only one romantic relationship I've been in that was not abusive, um, mm. and so. I ended up in a relationship with a judge in D.C. Huh. And, um... Are you saying that it was the judge who... Wait. It's the judge who was then a perpetrator of domestic violence? She did a lot of gaslighting and she did a lot of illegal things. And this is how I ended up in prison. (laughs) Go ahead. Um, This This is is very interesting. I hope you're writing a book. Did you write a book about this? You should. (laughs) Tina and I are working on that. <laughs> okay, good. Go, it sounds like a movie, actually. Okay, so go ahead. She, tell us what she did. Well, I, I'm not going to go into all the details because all right, well, it's very long so, and complicated, but I just want to say this. I was in a relationship with someone, so prior to that, I had fled my abuser and I had gone into hiding in London with my son. So I did have a criminal case, but the judge in that case did not incarcerate me because my ex-husband admitted in a newspaper to abusing me, and he's a white man. He's a professor at NYU, and um, abuse victims do not, when you're in a custody battle, we do not appear well before courts when someone's trying to take our children. Mm-hmm. And I left the country. When I came back, I, it's a long, long story, but at the end, I ended up with this woman who's a judge 
who lied to me from the beginning of a relationship and said that she did not know about my custody case, even though she's a family court judge here in D.C. Mm-hmm. The relationship was fraught with a lot of gaslighting, a lot of emotional abuse. But because I had this, I have attachment disorder, obviously, I just kept trying to fix things. When we finally were breaking up, it was because she was doing some things that were not legal. And I felt very scared about a lot of stuff. I ended up, and we were living together, and she had an adopted child. I ended up, um, the day that we were breaking up, I went to pack up my things. And um, during the course of that, I kind of fell apart. And I tried to kill myself. And they found me a day later in the attic there. Now, the media wrote all these things about me because that's what the media does. So Mm -hmm. my story was painted as judges, lesbian, stalker, which I am not. Oh, wow. Um, (laughs) I I did, did not. I was tried in the same courthouse where she is a sitting judge. I did not get a change of venue. I was tried by one of her colleagues. I, um, there was no criminal case until I actually filed a judicial misconduct against her for what she was doing. And I knew while, and I lost that trial. I would not take a plea. Um, While after in D.C., they even though I was out on personal recognizance, as soon as I lost the trial, they incarcerated me mm. and they had me, they gave me, I had three different psychologists give me testing and you know those tests, those very detailed testing, mm-hmm. um, the 200 questionnaire and then the cognitive and the intellectual and all of that, the IQ test. Mm-hmm. I was tested three times because the prosecution wanted me to have borderline personality disorder mm. when it is clear and it has been definitive now that I have complex PTSD, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. I have major depressive disorder. I have a suicidal ideation and I have acute panic and anxiety disorder and dissociative disorder. I do not have borderline personality disorder, but they like to give out those kind of diagnoses, especially to people of color, women of color, because supposedly you can't be cured. So during my sentencing phase, the judge read from the DSM-4, which is a violation of HIPAA, and he read the borderline personality disorder, and he said, you can't be helped. Oh, wow. That's what he said. And um, they kept bringing up my IQ and saying that my IQ was too high for me to have a mental illness (sighs) and that I was manipulative. And let's just keep in mind, what I did was I was charged with breaking and entering my own home where I was living with her. Um, And I tried to kill myself. But to have breaking and entering, you have to have an underlying offense, underlying offense, because you just can't break and enter. You have to have broken and and enter to do something else. Uh My underlying offense was to break and enter and stop by trying to commit suicide. That's what I was charged with, that I broke in to stalk her by trying to commit suicide. Oh, wow. And it, it's, so I was sentenced to 65 months in prison, of which I did four and a half years. Wow. And nobody, it, even though it was very clear about my history of abuse and trauma, the pre-sentencing report is something that's done for anybody that's been accused of a crime and been convicted of a crime or pled guilty is used by the probation department. And the probation department wrote, we respectfully request that the judge not give Ms. Nubel any prison time huh. but to sentence her to probation under the mental health division because of the trauma. They tracked down everybody. They huh. wrote a very favorable report. And the judge looked out at the crowd, and it was a packed courtroom. D.C. is a small town, but it's very political, and he said, I know the real Taylor Nouvelle, my colleagues at, they call it CSOSA here, the local department of uh, probation, he said, you got it wrong this time. (sighs) And then he just said, I couldn't be helped, and they sent me away to prison. And they actually said in the report that prison would be the worst thing for me, and it was. It was the worst thing for me. Wow. I mean, you know, they, obviously, they, the, that fit, that, the whole point was to try to help the female judge, 
and by declaring you as borderline, you know, and, and uh, uh, um, stalking and, and manipulative and all of that, uh, with even p- brief periods of psychosis, that made her look the best. Except for that, what's really interesting is the pills I took to OD on were her psych meds. <laughs> Uh, well, what happened to you? Did you have a, a, a um, public defender? By the time my case came around, my first attorney um, that I had was someone that I actually knew. I was friends with his daughter since childhood and known him, but he pulled off the case because he ended up with a heart condition, and the judge hand-selected my um, oh, wow. CJA attorneys, and, and my attorney told me flat out that he didn't like me. <sighs> And I was very traumatized by all of the media attention, and I pretty much went silent. And um, this is why I talk today. And it's when I got to prison is where I, that's where I first learned the word trauma. And I didn't know it before uh, I went to prison. And that's why you founded um, Who Speaks for Me, because there was obviously nobody speaking for you uh, during this trial. It wasn't just me. It wasn't just me. When I got to prison, I did a lot of post-conviction relief for women um, and trying to help them get visits with their children and as I would read through their pre-sentencing reports and their trial transcripts, I discovered that a lot of women, like me, have trauma from childhood and mm-hmm. in their adulthood. And I realized that no one was speaking for us. And I spent a lot of time on Suicide Watch. I was attacked at the lower-level prison at the camp where Martha Stewart went, when everyone calls Camp Cupcake at Alderson, which it's not Camp Cupcake. There's just no barbed wire, and you move freely. But mm-hmm. I got attacked a couple of times, and so I was sent to a higher-level prison where I was locked in a cell that was oh, meant well. for, three pe- for two people, and they had three. But there I ended up on suicide watch a, a lot, and that's when I realized that how isolated we are as women who are incarcerated and that no one's speaking for us. And that's uh-huh. why I found it Who Speaks For Me, because no uh-huh. one is speaking. It's the music. Yes, yes. Oh, wow. Well, so that's, that's, that's my story. <laughs> <laughs> that's an amazing story. And as I said before, I think you should be writing it. Um, but yes, uh, you know, as well, we, we do need to take a break now, but I'll just quickly say um, that one of the hats that I wear is as a forensic psychiatrist. And, um, you know, if I had been retained by your uh, attorney, a regular good attorney, um, it would have been to go through all your history and to present that and, and to uh, probably come to the same conclusions, not probably, come to the same conclusions that the uh, uh, probation department did. So that's really sad that you didn't get that. We were denied expert techno- t- t- testimony. We were denied uh, that. Wow. All right. We do need to take a break. Um, we'll come back in a couple of minutes. My um, guests are Christina Kopich and Taylor Nouvelle. And we're going to be continuing to talk about criminalization of children with mental illness. And this children can be, uh, can the, the incarceration or criminalization can even take place later in life. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. And I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787, and ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. Don't 
And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. This has been quite a quite an amazing show so far. Um, you know, uh, Taylor certainly brought what we're talking about to life. And Christina, we're now going to go back to Christina to talk a little bit more about the study. And, uh, you know, it's great to always have real-life examples. For those people who, <laughs> to kind of... Um, to kind of make it clearer or stronger for those people who aren't so sure about these kinds of, you know, studies. So, Christina, take us back. Sure. So this was an overarching um, overview of a lot of evidence that we basically collected that has never been put in the context of disability. We are well aware of the incarceration of people with mental illness, but again, the point we wanted to drive home is where it starts, and it starts really early with the education system. So Taylor, as she mentioned, is not a typical case because her incarceration happened when she was uh, 40 years old, but a lot of the youth basically gets directly funneled from school to prison. And the way that it happens is that a lot of schools have what's called zero-tolerance policies, so if you have a misbehavior, even if it's non-violent or non-criminal, you get detention or suspension. And we have data that shows that if you, people who do get suspended or ex- even expelled are much more likely to have a run-in uh, with the law to become legally uh, yeah. and criminally involved. You know, that and is so another one of my pet peeves. Uh, suspensions and expulsions as if, I mean, you know, all that does is take the problem out of the school, but it just makes, it sets that child on a definite life of either imprisonment or drugs or alcohol or um, suicide or something. Uh, It certainly doesn't help them. Yes, absolutely. So we are seeing an increased rate of uh, ending up in juvenile detention if you are being suspended. And, of course, the connection is, again, this non-apparent disability. So let's say you have uh, ADHD and are acting out or you even have antisocial um, tendencies. In, instead of becoming getting accommodations and getting the help mm-hmm. that legally students deserve to get when they have a disability, we see uh, schools not even testing them to find out what the disability is. And in some cases, even if their disability is confirmed, not getting the accommodations that they need. Mm-hmm. And uh, so what that's essentially where this increased school-to-prison pipeline comes from when it comes to children with mental illness and other non-apparent disabilities. And so, now in, so is your, first of all, I hope that you're spreading your, the white paper, this research, um, to, to everybody in education. Um, what are you doing to make all of these findings known? I mean, even though at some level, you know, a lot of the teachers or a lot of the administrators have the general idea of this, but here you're putting it in, yes. in facts and figures. What are you doing yes. to, um, to sort of hit them over the head with it in a very <laughs> non-abusive way? <laughs> right. So th- that is the really, really hard question because this problem is systemic. We're not just talking about one institution. It's not just schools. It's also our criminal justice system. It's our Mm -hmm. whole culture that dismisses mental illness as a disability. Yes. So we can't really just go to schools and be like, okay, put the resources you don't have into this because in order to get them more resources, you need to then go to a more local political level. To do that, you need to have more of an attitude change. So that's where we kind of are getting stuck. Yes, we're getting the message out, but there are schools who already have heard it loud and clear. And we know that the schools that cause about 80% of all the suspensions are, mm. there's about 5% of the schools that cause 80% of the suspensions. Mm. And those schools often tend to be in um, poor major, majority, uh, minority schools, and they yeah. tend to uh, also be schools for, quote-unquote, behavioral problem children. So we are seeing, even though segregation should be uh, illegal, we are seeing schools segregated by disability. Uh-huh. Uh, they're, they're not included. You basically have children who are struggling in inclusive settings, and instead of getting help, they get shipped off to schools with other children who have disabilities that are undiagnosed and untreated. 
and those schools do the worst. They, they just end up suspending students left and right, almost dooming them to becoming criminally involved. Yes. So, okay, so what, now we don't have very much time left, and I want to make sure that we can give out um, websites for each of you. Um, but just in a sentence, what, what, are, what, is, what are you trying to do to overcome these kinds of barriers? The number one thing, I, if, if we had to have only one wish, I would want the school officials and parents to be uh, trauma and disability informed yes. so that they know to fight for their children's rights and so that the schools also are aware of their students' rights. In the back of our study, which you can find on our website, um, we have a whole list of recommendations and sources divided by who you are, if you're a parent, if you're a teacher, if oh, you great. yourself have a disability. So I'm going to leave it at that. Okay, well, <laughs> give us the website. The website is rudermanfoundation.org. That is spelled R-U-D-E-R-M-A-N foundation.org. Okay, great. And Taylor, what website... Where can people go to find out more about your organization, um, Who Speaks for Me? So Who Speaks for Me, which is goal is to dismantle the trauma to prison pipeline for women and girls, is Who Speaks for Me, but the four is the number four, so it's Who Speaks, the number four, me.org. Okay, great. So let me repeat those. Uh, Ruder- w- of course, www. Okay, so Ruderman, R-U-D-E-R-M-A-N, foundation.org and whospeaksforme.org and it's the number four. Well, yes, ladies, you're doing, you're doing wonderful work and um, I, I really um, applaud you and, um, and Taylor, you're, you know, you're a great role model for people like you, you go to the prisons and you're a great role model of how you uh, came from such a horrendous horrendous uh, background of abuse and, and got to where you are. So, and Christina, you, of course, uh, with the research and all of that, is, you're both doing an incredible service. So thank you so much for being on Dr. Carol's Couch, and thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.